What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cad Brooks. Today, I'm excited to welcome back to Law and Disorder, Lee Goodmark. Lee is a professor at University of Maryland Francis King Carey Law School, where she co-directs the clinical law program and directs the gender violence clinic, which she founded. Professor Goodmark also teaches family law, social justice, and the law and gender-related courses. Goodmark is an internationally recognized authority on gender-based violence. Her legal work, scholarship, and commentary focus on aspects of gender-based violence, including race, intersectionality, criminalization, and incarceration. She is the author of Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, a balanced policy approach to intimate partner violence, which we talked to her about uh, a, a little bit ago. Uh, also the author of A Troubled Marriage, Domestic Violence in the Legal System, and is here to discuss her latest book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition feminism. Lee, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. Lee, so we this happened after we got off the, um, we stopped recording after our last interview, and I discovered that your Twitter handle is uh, Recovering Carceral Feminist Ask Me How, um, which just endeared me to you even more. Um, but I would like you to define carceral feminism for the folks and, and how that at one time manifested for you in your life as a way of moving forward in this work. I came out of law school at 24, started representing victims of violence at 25, and at that time, I absolutely would have been described as a carceral feminist. A lot of people see that as an insult. I just see it as a descriptor. A carceral feminist is someone who believes that the intervention of the carceral state is necessary to stop, to address, to hold accountable uh, people who use harm, um, people who use violence. And so... At that time, you know, in the early 90s, in the anti-violence movement, we were all pretty much carceral feminists, asterisk, except for, of course, the women of color who had been saying from jump, don't do this. It's a bad idea for us. It's a bad idea for our families and our communities. But largely white women in the anti-violence movement were very much allied behind the idea that the intervention of police, prosecutors, and courts was what would keep victims of violence safe, and that that kind of punishment was absolutely necessary. So my journey away from it has been a long time coming, but I very much come out of a time and a place in the anti-violence movement where we really had coalesced around this idea that a feminism based on strong state intervention via these carceral institutions was absolutely necessary to address gender-based violence. And let's talk about a, li- uh, a little bit, Lee, not only just your personal journey, but the the stats, right? The facts and data that actually show that utilizing the carceral state as the response to interrupting gender-based violence or intimate partner violence actually has not worked and actually has made women less safe, which is going to get to the core of uh, the, the book we're going to talk about today. Um, Talk, talk talk about how that has played out. Have we seen reduction? Have have men stopped harming women and, and, and children in their homes? Are, are transgender and, and gender non-conforming folks any safer from these situations 40 plus years later? What the research shows is that intimate partner violence has decreased since 1994, which is the passage of the Violence Against Women Act. So you'll hear President Biden talk about how VAWA is responsible 
for the decrease in intimate partner violence in the United States. But what he doesn't say is that all violent crime in the United States has decreased since 1994 and pretty significantly. And if you look at the data, what you see is that intimate partner violence decreases the exact same amount as all violent crime in the United States. What that doesn't show you is just how much funding we have put into the criminalization of intimate partner violence since 1994. Multiple billions of dollars dedicated to police, prosecutors, and courts just in the areas of intimate partner violence, stalking, date, uh, dating violence, and the like, and getting us no more of a return than the natural drop in the overall rate of violent crime. So I would argue and have argued in my second book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, that criminalization and the funding put behind criminalization is not decreasing or deterring intimate partner violence. And in fact, it's exacerbating many of the correlates of that violence and having fairly serious consequences for the people that it was meant to protect in the first instance. Lee Goodmark, you, you said that incidents of intimate partner violence have indeed gone down since 1994. I would like to just juxtapose that statement with some actual numbers. Can you talk about how many women um, are beaten in this country a day? How many women die every day as a result of intimate partner violence? There are about 600,000 incidents of intimate partner violence in the United States every year. And that number has fluctuated over time. So it was much higher than that in 2016. It went down significantly. It's popped back up just a little bit. Um, but that's about the number that we get from the National Crime Victimization Survey. It's about 600,000 a year at this point. In your second book, we were talking specifically about domestic violence or intimate partner violence. This book, we're talking about gender-based violence. And I'm wondering if you can define that for us. Gender-based violence is a little bit broader. It includes intimate partner violence. But in this book, I also talk about victims of rape and sexual assault and people who have been trafficked uh, through sex trafficking or labor trafficking, hum victims of human trafficking. And the idea behind that is to get at kind of this broader picture of who criminalized survivors are. Uh, it's not just one form of violence. And oftentimes people are experiencing multiple forms of violence at the same time. What do you mean by terms like imperfect victims or criminalized survivors? Criminalized survivors are people who have been punished by the state in some way for crimes related directly to their own victimization. The kind of stereotypical version of this is the person who fights back against an abusive partner in self-defense and is prosecuted for that action. But in fact, there are lots of different ways that criminalized survivors come to the legal system. People are committing crimes at, under, the dure, under duress from, under the coercion from, at the direction of their abusive partners. People are self-medicating and committing crimes to deal with the violence in their lives. People are not committing crimes at all, but are associated with partners or others who they are involved with intimately, who are committing crimes, and they are held responsible for those crimes. And so I use the definition that the organization Survived and Punished uses around criminalized survivors. It's women, uh, femme-identifying, and trans and gender non-conforming people who have been punished by the criminal legal system in some way as a direct result of their victimization. When I talk about imperfect victims, that's a little bit different. 
the legal system has a pretty narrow definition of victimization. So to be a perfect victim, you have to be white, straight, cisgender, middle class, weak, meek, and passive. And this comes from both the social science literature around intimate partner violence and other forms of violence, as well as deeply embedded racism and prejudices about who gets to count as a victim and who doesn't. The obvious problem there is that very few people can meet those standards, even some white women, uh, maybe too remote from idealized versions of whiteness to qualify as victims. So if you are angry, and particularly for Black women, if you are tagged as an angry Black woman, if you do sex work, if you have mental health issues, if you are a substance user, all of those things are departures from this idealized version of victimhood that make you eligible for assistance from the legal system. Those are the things that make you an imperfect victim. But People are imperfect victims also because they transgress norms around this idea of weakness and passivity. So if you have a checking account, if you have a job, if you are taking care of yourself, then it's easy for actors within the legal system to say, well, you're not really a victim of violence either. I'm going to delve into some of those stories in a minute, but fairly early in the book, you also talk about young people and particularly young people of color, right? Black and indigenous um, girls, transgender, uh, gender non-conforming folks who, as you say in the book, and this is something we talk about right in the world of, of police accountability and in the conversation with state terror all the time, are seen neither as victims or as children. Can you say more about that, please? There are conceptions of girlhood, particularly, but childhood more generally, and conceptions of victimization that should protect children who are harmed by intimate partners, who are trafficked by other people, who are raped and sexually assaulted. And again, if you depart from those stereotypes in any way, then you are denied those protections. And so in the book, I talk about, for example, victims of trafficking. Federal law says that if you are under the age of 18 and engaged in sex work, that is by definition trafficking. And yet police see children doing sex work and call them criminals, say that they are engaged in volitional sex work, say that they are enjoying it because by being sexual in any way, they're departing from notions of childhood. Young girls who are raped, who are seen as asking for it, who are treated as uh, the people who manipulated people into causing that harm. Um, All of these things keep children and particularly children of color, girls of color, and especially black girls and black trans and gender nonconforming children from being legible as victims when they come into contact with the juvenile system and honestly with the adult system as well. I wanted to talk about some of the ways that young people come into the the system um, as you go over in this chapter. Um, one of the ways, and you tell it to the story of a, of a young person named Danielle Hicks Best, is by reporting crimes themselves. Can you walk us through her scenario? Danielle Hicks Best was an 11-year-old girl who was living in Washington, D.C., who was abducted and raped by two men in her neighborhood. She went home and she told her parents about it. She was terrified of these men. A second time she was abducted and raped, they called the police and the police basically said, we don't believe you. Your story is inconsistent. You're not performing victimhood in the way that we think you should. 
And so not only are we not going to pursue the men who raped you, we're going to charge you with making a false statement. And so at 11 years old, Danielle Hooks Best was charged with kind of this making of a false statement. And because her parents were so concerned about the toll that a trial would take on her, they had her plead guilty rather than fight these charges. And Danielle said to her father at the end of this thing, I don't understand this. I was the victim and I'm the one who's getting locked up. And that's indicative of the ways in which police look at young women who are sexual in any way and say that sexuality means that you are not a victim. It's also indicative, I think, of the stranglehold, right, that the carceral system has on the, the, the minds, the hearts, the souls of folks of color. And one of the things that we're the most scared of. Um, you also talk about young people coming into the system via domestic uh, and or dating violence, but particularly what caught my eye here is domestic violence as it relates to other family members, parents, step-parents, et cetera. We talked last time about mandatory arrest. And mandatory arrest laws, just to kind of remind people, are laws that require police to make arrests in cases involving domestic violence whenever they have probable cause to do so. One of the consequences of mandatory arrest laws has been increased arrest rates for girls and especially for girls of color when they are engaged in various kinds of altercations, but especially when they're engaged in altercations with parents. So you can imagine a situation where a parent goes after a kid and maybe hits the kid and the kid fights back, the police are called and they've got a mandatory arrest law. So the police look at the situation and they say, well, we've got one kid who's saying that her mom came after her. And we've got the mom who's saying that she did no such thing. And she's got three other kids in the house. Is it easier for us to arrest the kid and take her into custody? Or if we do the mom, then we got to deal with these three other kids as well. Mandatory arrest has led to sharply increased rates of arrests for girls in situations just like that one. And we know that jails and prisons are horrific in, in adult facilities. They're not much better in youth facilities, if better at all. Um, and, and these types of arrests do often lead to secure detention or folks being placed in foster care or other types of facilities. Can you talk about the conditions? So they go from the trauma of the experience, the trauma of being arrested, and then they're held in facilities that further compound that trauma. There are so many horrible things about juvenile detention facilities. Uh, there are descriptions in the book of facilities in Florida where there were no doors on any of the showers, no doors on any of the bathrooms. Children were being beaten by staff members. The place was filthy. The food was inedible. Um, there are other descriptions of kind of alarms going off and sprinklers going off. The one that really stuck with me was a place where there were lines painted on the floor and the girls were not permitted to be anywhere but outside of those lines. Uh, Brisha Meadows, who you may remember from the news, shot her abusive father after years of him abusing her mother and raping her, was confined in one of these facilities. And she said, basically, it was the same as living in the home of my abusive parent. I've already been here. I know what this looks like. That's how kids experience these secure detention facilities. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Lee Goodmark, who has a new book out, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. Before we even get to the, um, the 
the prosecution and the punishment for uh, adult folks that get caught up in the carceral state. I want to talk about the violence of arrest and the long-term consequences that can have, even if you're not convicted or, or if all charges are dropped, particularly for black and brown poor folks, right, who can't miss a day, let alone six of them, of a job. Arrest is incredibly traumatic. And especially if you have been the victim of violence, to be identified as a perpetrator and to be kind of brought into that system can be unbelievably damaging to you. So there's stigma, uh, there's the immediate harm, there's monetary harm because you have to pay for cash bail, you might miss time off of work, um, there might be a, the cost of hiring a lawyer. Um, there are also longer term consequences as well around things like um, not being eligible for certain kinds of licenses or not being uh, eligible for housing. Arrest records are public. And so people, both the police and the public can see those records. Um, there may be other kinds of consequences like electronic monitoring. Um, it can lead to the denial or, uh, or suspension of occupational licenses, a loss of child custody, the intervention of the family policing system. So we talk about arrest sometimes as though it's no big deal, like you just get arrested, but if nothing else happens, it's no big deal. But in fact, victims of violence talk about how deeply traumatic that experience of arrest was. I mean, even just the pain of the handcuffs on your wrist, like that is that for me is one of the memories that stands out for me the most about the times that I've been arrested is how painful that is. And you tell a story in your book actually about a woman that was arrested and, and the, the handcuffs put on so tight that the fire department had to unjam them. Yeah. Yeah. And that story of Simone Phoenix, I think is important for a couple of different reasons. So Ms. Phoenix went to the Providence police station to ask for emergency housing funds. She had been assaulted by her husband the week before. She was looking for a way to move out of their house with her son, her child, I'm sorry, with her child, and uh, to get someplace closer to her new job. So she went to talk to these law enforcement advocates who were employed by a local anti-violence organization, but were embedded in the Providence police station. And they asked her a bunch of questions, and then they told her she needed a mental health vacation. She told them she didn't have time for that kind of a vacation. And she asked if she could leave and they told her she could, but the police who were standing at the elevator told her that she was not free to leave. And they started to close in on her as they did that. She told them, look, I have PTSD. Please don't come any closer to me. Then when they started to grab her, she swung out in panic. And that's when kind of all hell broke loose. Um, the officers threw her to the ground. They kicked her repeatedly. And then, as you said, they handcuffed her so tightly that the fire department later had to remove the cuffs, which had jammed. They dragged her down the hallway by her hair. They put her in a holding cell and left her there for three hours. And then they took her to the hospital um, and told the hospital staff that she was suicidal. They charged her with simple assault and malicious destruction to property. And then later, all of the charges were dismissed. One of the other things that I found compelling in this chapter that I'd like you to walk my listeners to is you go through a list of reasons, uh, three of them, uh, that law enforcement have for arresting victims of gender-based violence. And I wonder if you could just say what those are and explain them a little bit. So law enforcement officers arrest because they think that they're going to give somebody a, a kind of a wake-up call to say, hey, this is a really serious situation. You need to do something about it. You need to help yourself in some way. They arrest because they think they're helping. 
Um, so, for example, in cases of trafficking, uh, trafficking survivors will be arrested so that they can be connected to services that are only available through the criminal legal system. But mostly they arrest because they don't see people as victims of violence. They see that there are injuries on the other party, which may be defensive injuries, but they don't think about it that way. They see that someone is doing sex work and therefore they're a criminal, even if they've been harmed while they were doing that sex work. They just don't believe people's stories of victimization. And that's the third reason that they make arrests. And while we're talking about the boys in blue, can you talk a little bit about the the rates of intimate partner violence inside of relationships with law enforcement? The data is pretty old and some of the studies aren't great, but we have reason to believe that law enforcement officers are two to four times more likely to be committing acts of intimate partner violence than people in the general population. And anecdotally, I can tell you because this is something I follow pretty closely, I have a Google alert that gives me 10 domestic violence stories every day. It is a rare day when there's not a story about an officer being arrested or convicted of perpetrating intimate partner violence against an intimate partner. So while we don't have really good recent data, we certainly have reason to believe that police officers are committing acts of intimate partner violence at rates far higher than the general population. And then sometimes when that happens, then they have the protection of the badge and the gun and the blue wall of silence that keeps them safe and their partner even less so. You've got a story like that in the book as well. Yeah. um, So the woman in that story called the police because her husband had assaulted her, but he said that, in fact, she was the primary perpetrator. And when police came out, they just didn't believe her. Um, they knew him. They were friends with him. They didn't take her her story seriously. And it wasn't until she was able to show that she had broken ribs from that altercation that anyone even bothered to listen to her side of that story. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Lee Goodmark, who has a new book out, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. Okay, Lee, let's move from arrest to prosecution. Um, you talk about in the book, and, and Laura Bazelon has done some great work around this as well, as, and it's been uplifted in terms of this conversation of, I think it's an oxymoron, but folks say progressive prosecutors, and the power that prosecutors have in the judicial system, right? Like, they, they are the most powerful entity inside of that process. Why do they prosecute victims? Prosecutors go after victims, I think, for three reasons as well. You know, one, again, to rescue or to save them. Um, so you'll see, for example, prosecutors using a tool called material witness warrants. And this goes back quite some time to the beginning of the modern anti-violence movement. After the inception of mandatory arrest laws and the kind of increase in arrest rates as a result of those laws, there wasn't really an increase in prosecution. People went to prosecutors and said, well, why? Why is this happening? And they said, well, because our victims, they don't want to testify. So they've done something to make that happen, which is to use what are called material witness warrants to make that happen. A material witness warrant allows a prosecutor to say to a judge, hey, we subpoenaed this person to testify. They're not showing up. We want them arrested and held until they give their testimony. We can't make this case without them. And so pursuant to material witness warrants, people can be locked up for a day, a week, a month, six months. There, none of the protections that attach to criminal defendants attach to people who are being held under material witness warrants, except in a couple of states now. So what that means is you don't have to be brought into court in any particular amount of time. 
You don't have to be given bail. You're not kept in a different place. The conditions of confinement are no better. Um, there's a story out of Tennessee where about a dozen victims of violence were arrested and held and they were sprayed. Um, they were roughed up. Um, a woman named Donna Oliver from Tennessee talks about how she had bruises on her body and correctional officers concurred that they had used force even though she was the victim in that case. Um, I talk about a woman um, named Renata Singleton who was jailed pursuant to a material witness warrant who had her bail set at $100,000, um, was kept in jail for five days, was then taken into court where her bail was lowered to $5,000. She was brought in in an orange jumpsuit Shackled, chained to the people next to her. She was only released um, on that lower bail on electronic monitoring. And her bail was still higher than the guy she was supposed to testify against who pled guilty. And therefore, they never needed her testimony anyway. Uh, And so prosecutors can really use pretty heavy handed uh, tools in terms of forcing the cooperation of folks who have been harmed in these cases in the name of rescuing them or saving them. Prosecutors also take the cases that they think they can win. And there's some reason to believe that prosecuting victims of intimate partner violence, for example, who use force is pretty easy because they tell their stories in detail. They're not likely to argue that they're innocent. They're often eager to plead out. Um, And then prosecutors, again, take these cases because they don't believe the defendant is a victim. So they will counter victimization claims by saying, no, the defendant was angry or she was jealous, not afraid, um, that she was a strong woman. She could hold her own. And I think the story of Sally McNeil, which isn't in the book, but is in the Netflix show Killer Sally, is really illustrative here. So Sally McNeil killed her husband, Ray, after years of his abuse, and she transgressed the kind of victimization norms in almost every possible way. She was a Marine Um, which is a branch of the service known for its machismo. She was very heavily muscled. She was physically strong. She was a champion bodybuilder. She was the primary breadwinner for the family so that her husband could uh, pursue his bodybuilding career. She wrestled men for money, which meant selling access to her body. Um, She brawled with pretty much everybody. She used what prosecutors called inappropriate language. And she had physically fought with her husband, often about his infidelity during the marriage. So despite the fact that he, and it's, you know, all of those things were true, but Ray was bigger and Ray was stronger and Ray had been abusing Sally for years before the night that she killed him in self-defense. And despite the fact that there was physical evidence of his abuse and the fact that there were witnesses who testified to hearing Ray strangling Sally on the night of his death, the prosecutor in that case said, nope, she's a bully. She's a thug and a violent person can't be a battered woman. And then finally, prosecutors um, prosecute to send a message. So when they think that there's a concern about, for example, it's open season on husbands, we have to prosecute this case, or we can't have people lying to protect themselves in the system. And so we're going to go after the victim who tells a different story on the stand because she's afraid of what will happen to her if she doesn't. What also so that those are reasons why prosecutors prosecute. You also talk in the book about some of the contributing societal factors that have aided the the women in being prosecuted for defending themselves in violent interaction. Like you talked about, um, or at least perception of them. So, like there's uh, liberalization of divorce. I think is one of the the things that you list in the book. If you could walk us through some of those as well. 
The idea there is that we expect people now, so because we have created an entire legal regime dedicated to helping people escape violent situations, escape violent relationships, and that includes liberalizing divorce laws so that you can get a divorce from a violent partner, uh, ensuring that you can have economic support, the creation of protective orders that allow people to go into court and ask for their partners to be kept away from them, uh, to not abuse, threaten, or harass, or physically abuse them, to stay away from various places. That Because we have all of these legal tools now, the expectation is that you don't have to defend yourself from within the relationship, that instead you'll go and use the legal system. But you know, I've spent two books talking about why the legal system is not particularly receptive to these claims in a number of different ways and how hard it can be for people to actually use these tools. Um, we've also done a fair amount of, of liberalization around the criminal law in terms of you know, saying that when you are arguing self-defense, you can also talk about the impact of battering and its consequences. And that too hasn't been quite as protective, I think, as people would have hoped. So even though we are talking more about intimate partner violence, there are better resources than there were in, say, the 1950s. The idea still that somebody can just up and leave is pretty ridiculous. There's an entire phenomenon known as separation-related violence that is very real. And so those expectations, unrealistic though they are, may be creating you know, the climate that that criminalized survivors are facing when they get into court, having tried to protect themselves in some way. I was going to go back to this, this expectation that people can just leave and just ask you as someone who's been doing this work since the 1990s, does it make your head explode that we're still having this conversation? I mean, through evolutions of explaining um, the emotional and mental um, impact on survivors of intimate partner violence, the fact that black and brown and poor people cannot and do not trust the legal system. I mean, there's so many reasons that we've been talking about for so many decades, and yet it is so entrenched in justifications for continuing to criminalize our communities. That's exactly right. I, it does make my head explode. And what's interesting, too, about it is that people are not, they'll say the quiet part out loud. They'll say, you should have just left. And it's as though we haven't been training judges and police officers and others for 40 years on this stuff. And we haven't been you know, pouring money into these systems to try to get them to understand why that's a problem. You see that in the case of Nikki Adamando, which I talk about kind of later in the book around sentencing, where there's a huge amounts of evidence of her abuse. There's all kinds of witnesses to her abuse. And the judge finally says, well, you should have just left. You could have just left. You didn't have to kill him. Kind of ignoring the entire context within which that crime took place. And not for nothing, but something that, that women that are in these relationships, people that are in these relationships know, um, all, all too well is that actually leaving is the time you're most likely to be killed. And that also bears out in the data that we see across the globe. Yep. That's absolutely right. And nothing, nothing about that has changed. Right. Nothing has made people safer. And, you know, you see stories every day of the people who did, and I'm air quoting, not that you can see it, everything right. They got protective orders. They went to police. They still ended up dead. You can't, you can't forecast how these cases are going to come out and to be kind of that Monday morning quarterback saying, no, you could have just left and you would have been fine is ridiculous. 
You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Lee Goodmark about her latest book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. You also go into the book, right, about the horrors of of incarceration and the different types of punishment that survivors um, end up facing. But I don't have very much time with you left, and the the motto of this show is to expose, agitate, and build. I think we've done the first two. I want to turn to the building part. Because the 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 second you know piece the final piece of the title of the book is the promise of abolition Femi- feminism. Talk to define abolition feminism for for my listeners, please. Abolition feminism is a feminism that rejects the idea that intervention by the carceral state is the way to address gender based violence. It basically is an, a feminism that rejects carcerality. And I think that it's that it being feminism is, excuse me. I think that that tying abolition to the word feminism is critically important here. And I think that we should talk about women of color that are, are pushing this theory forward and and demonstrating how the carceral system hasn't kept us safe and wanting self determination and how we keep ourselves and our fellow sisters safe. I like to start here by talking about kind of all the people to whom this book owes debts. So Mm. Dr. Davis, Angela Davis, has been talking for years about abolition in the context of feminism and talking about why it is that particularly people who are engaged in the anti-violence world should be abolitionists. Beth Ritchie and Mariam Kaba both come out of the anti-violence community, and they looked at an anti-violence movement that was deeply steeped in the carceral system and said, this isn't working for us, and why are we not recognizing as a movement that the state is one of the main perpetrators of gender-based violence, particularly in the form of incarceration. Andrea Ritchie, who talks about police violence, Alyssa Bieria, who's been doing this work for years, Black feminists and, and feminists of color are primarily responsible for the development of abolition feminism, and particularly in bringing attention to the needs of and the plight of criminalized survivors. And so this book owes everything to all of that work. I Beth Ritchie's work is the altar at which I worship. Um, yeah, uh, I, There's nobody whose work has been more important to me. Um, and I do think it's really important that abolition in feminism um, are, are married together here because carceral feminism has done so much damage. And abolition feminism is a way to reclaim feminism, to say that it doesn't have to be destructive in the ways that it has been destructive, that it can be about the building that we need to do for abolition to become a reality, that it can be about making sure that people have the things they need to live and to thrive in community so that we don't need to, and we never needed to cage people, but so that we don't have a not we, so that society doesn't have a justification for continuing to cage people. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just say out loud that uh, abolition feminism is how I made my way into the world of feminism at all, because, but before that feminism on... uh, Part of it was childhood rebellion, right? Because my mom was a radical feminist. But but I, as a Black woman, did not see myself in feminism until I started understanding abolition feminism. Um... What does abolition feminism say to folks that say, okay, well, that, you know, that, that's, that's fine for folks that maybe engage in property crimes or folks that, that are engaged in nonviolent, um, not nonviolent crimes, 
but but these are, we're talking about acts of violence here. What what do you do about those folks? Because particularly, and we talked about this before, right? Like when we're talking about non-carceral response to mental health crisis, I was having one set of conversation with people. When I started talking about non-carceral response to domestic violence, even the abolitionists in my life right. looked at me like I had three heads. I think that's right. That's still true. Um, it's a couple of things, I think. One is to ask people to really look hard at who's perpetrating violence and why to ask whether we have done anything to try to address the trauma in their lives, to try to get at some of the root causes of that violence, and to acknowledge that if, as the data shows, that trauma and economic stress are some of the primary drivers of intimate partner violence, to acknowledge that prison is gonna exacerbate those things, it's gonna make it worse, not better, that it's not gonna stop the violence, and that when people return to their communities, they're not gonna to return to their communities better. They're gonna to return to their communities in places where they're much more likely to commit acts of violence. That's one thing. I think a second thing is, I don't wanna have that conversation with anybody who's never been inside of a prison. And honestly, it wasn't until I started working in prisons regularly that I really shifted to abolition. I couldn't see it for myself. And once I was in prisons regularly, as I have been for the last 10 years, I couldn't imagine that there wasn't a better way to do all of this. Caging people is not a solution to our problems. Caging people just makes people disappear in incredibly inhumane and traumatic spaces. And that's not something that I think people can support once they've been face to face with it. So I think that's a, a second piece of it. And the third piece is something that really came into place for me um, in reading Miriam Kaba's work, because I think for me, the last step to abolition was not being able to make the kind of a leap of faith that was necessary, the imaginative leap of faith that was necessary to say, yes, I believe in this idea. And when Miriam said, basically, we don't have to have this answer today about what it's all going to look like, because we're not just going to shut it all down today. What we need to do is start building. What we need to do is shift our resources. What we need to do is start creating the conditions within which abolition can be a reality. That was the permission that I needed to be able to say, I don't know what it's all going to look like. I don't know what we do with the most violent people, but I know that this isn't working. And I know that I can't continue to support this. And that if we do this other work that we need to be doing, then we'll find our way to a solution. But it's impossible for us to find that solution without knowing what the scope of the problem is going to be when we've actually done the work, the, the kind of foregrounding work that needs to happen for abolition to be a reality. That's right. And the other thing that I want to touch base on is, you know, when when you have when people are having these conversations about abolition, often they're talking about dismantling. I mean, me too, right? Like I'm like I'm very excited about dismantling the police state that exists in this country. But that's not all abolition is about. And and it also is not this thing that is in the far off future, right? We are seeing abolition now happen in programs, community created and driven, uh, implemented programs across the country. Can you talk about what abolition now inside of this work looks like in the field? What what mechanisms are we building right now to deviate away from the carceral state in response in response to um, a gender based violence, but also as a way to interrupt it from happening in the first place? In decriminalizing domestic violence, I talk a lot about some of the preventative work that's happening around adolescence, around adverse childhood experiences, trying to use the data that we have about the ways that you can intervene to prevent kids 
from being exposed to abuse and neglect, to community violence, to violence in the home, so that they don't then grow up to be people who are using harm in their own relationships, intervening with adolescents to help them understand what healthy relationships look like, to model healthy relationships for them, building intervention programs for people who are using harm that really understand the duality of the problem, that most people don't come to violence for the first time as perpetrators. Most people come to violence as victims. And so understanding that people have experienced trauma and doing something to intervene around that trauma, creating community support through things like mutual aid and the development of strong community networks of support and community accountability projects and restorative and transformative justice. Um, And so there are lots of things that we're doing that could divert our, our time, our resources, our energy away from the criminal legal system and into things that could actually help. I also think it's fair for people to not be quite at abolition. I, I, it took me 28 years, so I'm willing to give people some grace in terms of kind of getting there. And so in the book, it's really important to me to provide what critical resistance has called non-reformist reforms in the context of criminalized survivors specific things that we can do, even if you're not ready to get to abolition, that will dismantle the system in part, that will make it less toxic to criminalize survivors, things like getting rid of mandatory arrest laws, getting rid of material witness warrants, getting rid of the long mandatory minimum sentences that entrap lots of people, um, particularly around things like felony murder, where you are incarcerated, though you did not hurt anyone uh, necessarily, you did not harm, you you weren't the person who killed someone else. Um, Dealing with cash bail, which is a huge problem for criminalized survivors, women are less able to get the resources together for bail. They're more likely to take pleas when they think they're going to face long jail sentences because they can't make bail. That's entrapping criminalized survivors. We can do work around survivor defense. Um, There's all kinds of amazing work going on, for example, in the Wendy Howard campaign in California right now, her defense team is doing amazing, her survivor defense team is doing amazing work, keeping people aware of the ways in which the state is going after Wendy Howard. And we see this all over the country. In the case of Tracy McCarter in New York, for example, the only reason I think that the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, finally made good on his promise not to pursue Tracy McCarter was because the survivor defense campaign did not let it go. And they kept at him saying, you said you wouldn't prosecute survivors. You said that that was unfair. You said you stood with Tracy. What are you going to do about it? And so there's all kinds of stuff that people can do along the way to abolition that decrease the impacts of that system um, and are really important reforms that we can be making without shoring up the legitimacy of the system itself. Lee Goodmark, is there anything that I have not asked you that you would like to put out into the world? The only thing I want to say is to say thank you to my clients. This book happened because I was doing, um, I was facilitating a group of lifers in the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. We were trying to come up with a project and we decided that we would write a book together. They were going to write their life stories. I was going to frame them using the law and the social science data. The warden approved it. The Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services nixed it. And the women said to me, please write it anyway. It's so important that our stories get out there. And so this book is really for them. Um, it's 
to make them know that we haven't forgotten them, that we do care about these women who are just women and, and trans and gender nonconforming people, femme identified people who are living in cages, who are subjected to extreme sentencing, who are victimized by the state every single day that they're incarcerated. Um, and so I hope that they know how much I appreciate their willingness to share those stories with me. And I hope that I've done them justice. You absolutely have. Thank you, Lee, for your work, uh, for this book, uh, for your contributions to this field and your support of survivors and for coming back on the show. It's been wonderful to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Kat. I'm happy to come back anytime. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, and we've been in conversation with Lee Goodmark. Lee is a professor at University of Maryland Francis King Carey Law School, where she co-directs the clinical law program and directs the Gender Violence Clinic, which she founded. Professor Goodmark also teaches family law, social justice in the law, and gender-related courses. Professor Goodmark is an internationally recognized authority on gender-based violence. Her legal work scholarship and commentary focus on aspects of gender-based violence, including race, intersectionality, criminalization, and incarceration. She is the author of Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, A Troubled Marriage, Domestic Violence in the Legal System, and now her latest book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>